thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara. And today I'm without Kim Morrison and without Karen Smith because I'm in the US and I'm at the Dr. Terry Walls Protocol Seminar. So this is a seminar that's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I get to listen to people with amazing recovery stories as well as scientists and doctors and all the information about multiple sclerosis. So I have with me, I have a gentleman by the name of Bob Cafaro, and he is a cellist who has basically done the miracle thing where he had multiple sclerosis. It wasn't when Terry Walls was around. He had to do the research himself. I listened to him speak, and I am absolutely blown away by his journey. So I thought that you would love to hear all about this amazing gentleman. So welcome, Bob. Thank you, Cindy. Yay. So do you want to tell me what happened when you were or what was leading up to before you got your multiple sclerosis um, diagnosis? I was um, basically in good physical condition. I ate a relatively healthy diet. Uh, You know, I would occasionally eat some foods that I shouldn't eat, but it was generally pretty sensible. And I had just turned 40 years old. And then two months later, I started experiencing numbness in my right leg. It was very strange. Uh, I saw two doctors. They thought it was probably a pinched nerve, nothing to worry about. The leg started actually dragging at one point, And they said, don't worry about it. And it seemed to go away on its own, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, two months later, I started to get something strange in my left eye, which turned out to be optic neuritis. And it was... Uh, basically peripheral vision loss where areas of your vision actually disappear from view. The strangest experience. Was it scary? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I kept thinking, you know, there was something in my eye. And then finally I went to a neurologist for the first time in my life. And he did an MRI of my brain and it came back clean and he showed me and he said, you have no lesions. And I was terrific because I was worried it might've been multiple sclerosis. And he looked at me and said, you have MS. And I was devastated. I, I couldn't believe this because my only knowledge of the disease was the great British cellist, Jacqueline Dupre, who, you know, stopped playing at the age of 26 and died from complications of the disease at age 42. So you could imagine a professional cellist. You know, I've been a cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra since 1985. I just want everybody to hear what you just said again. (laughs) You've been a cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Like we hear about this orchestra in Australia. Right. And so I feel very honoured that you know, you're doing this interview with me because it's a famous orchestra. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. you know, to me, it's not a, just a great orchestra. It's a legend. Yeah. You know, it really is. And you could imagine a professional cellist at that level being told you have multiple sclerosis. I didn't want to believe this. And I was just in a complete state of denial because, number one, there were no lesions on my brain. Number two, the neurologist was an epilepsy specialist. So, of course, he had to be wrong. 
So of course, yeah. So I my uh, I went and got a second opinion from a very esteemed neurologist, one of the supposed top three in the country, and he thought maybe it was rheumatoid. And I, I was tested for everything you could imagine: AIDS, Lyme disease, all rheumatoid diseases, vasculitis, lupus. I mean, down the list, heavy metal toxicity, you name it, and. Everything came back negative, and then the neurologist found three lesions in my spinal cord, and he, at that point, it was a definitive diagnosis of MS, but I still didn't want to believe this, and that summer, uh, in 1999, I was doing, you know, these monster 30-mile bike rides in the heat to prove I had been misdiagnosed, and Four months after my diagnosis, I started losing peripheral vision in my right eye, which was very scary because the left eye had never recovered completely. And I got on intravenous steroids for the second time. You know, it's a thousand milligrams of methylprednisolone per day for three days, followed by oral steroids. And then that stabilized things for about one week. And then I came down with what I thought was a stomach bug. And I started vomiting and I couldn't keep food down or water for about seven days. And then I wound up hospitalized for extremely severe dehydration. Uh, I was released from the hospital four days later and I was unable to move my hands. I was almost blind in both eyes. I was incontinent. I could hardly walk. I had no strength. My body felt like it was receiving electrical current and I was hearing helicopters all the time. And I went to see a neuro-ophthalmologist whom I had been seeing uh, for just, you know, he was basically monitoring my progress or lack of progress for the past six months. And he gave me a vision test, a basic vision test, and I couldn't even see the largest letters on the chart. And then he gave me a visual field test, which you see a flashing light in the periphery and you click each time and I didn't click once with either eye. We couldn't see a thing and at that point he turned to me and he said, okay, I'll write you a note for permanent disability. And that just stopped me in my tracks at that moment because I had basically been a, you know, a, a passive passenger at that point, just going with doctor's recommendations and I hadn't made any lifestyle changes. Can I just ask you when you did your first di- had your first diagnosis? So they didn't say anything about food, not a word, exercise, stress release. They didn't say a thing. No. And then when I received my definitive diagnosis two months later from the esteemed specialist, he put me on the drug Avonex, which is an interferon beta injection. And I asked him, "What should I do?" and he basically didn't have anything to offer. He said, my only thing, he says, I wouldn't exercise to the point where you're sweating. That was the only thing he said. Nothing about diet. Nothing would matter at all. Wow. So here I was. I was told I'd be on permanent disability. And, you know, after I got out of the hospital, I tried playing the cello. And I couldn't even line up four fingers on one string and forget trying to play the cello. It was gone. I couldn't hold a phone. I couldn't write. It was just my hands were useless. I couldn't feel them at all. They had no sensation. That must so have been devastating. It was. Devastating, and yeah. when he told me I was going to be on permanent disability, it just stopped time for me. And you know how you see everything in slow motion my whole life before me that basically what he said to me was, 
your life will now be the waiting room before the cemetery. Or I felt like in, you know, in Dickens, the Christmas Carol, this mm. was the ghost of Christmas future showing me my grave. And I don't know what happened at that point, but I just, something came through me and out of me. And I said to him, you can take that permanent disability note and you can use it as a suppository <laughs> because I'm going back to work when the orchestra season starts in six weeks. So we're in the summer now. Mm. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, how are you going to do that? And I started to cry. And he, he, I said, I'm going to go back to work in six weeks. And he said, you know, I'm going to tell you something right now. He said, I've seen people in your position a year from now and they're still in a wheelchair. And I've seen people in your situation a year from now and you wouldn't know anything's wrong with them. And I said, a year from now, I'm going to be one of those people. You won't know anything's wrong with me. Mm. And I went home. Well, he I, gave you hope, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And I went home and I couldn't see, but I had this big computer screen. I enlarged the font and I started my own research. And one of the first things I did was I found a website called The Water Cure, mm -hmm. written by an Iranian doctor. And Dr. Here, Batman. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Batman. I can't say his name either. Right. But I started, <laughs> at that point, following his recommendation, I started drinking half my body weight in ounces of water a day. And did you add the salt to it as well? No, I you didn't, didn't add the, the salt. salt. Oh. No. My, I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, my body yeah. seems to have some major reaction to salt. So... You know, Which we know is um, there's a, a there's a gene where some people can tolerate salt and some people can't. It'd if, be interesting. Yeah, to if see. I eat a normal meal with salt, the next day, I, like my ring, I can hardly move it. My eyes are swollen. My joints feel puffy. Yeah, yeah. So I, I basically try to eat zero salt because there's enough existing salt in the food. Mm. Ah, so you just so did the water. The water, and mm -hmm. I. Here I was, I was so paranoid about getting my fourth attack, right? The first one was numbness in the leg, second one, optic neuritis, and the third one came in two stages. Started with optic neuritis in the right eye, and then it turned into this supposed stomach virus. And Do you think that was the prednisone that may have, um, I don't know, like it, it's meant to dull it down, but could have it, it actually increased the rate at which the disease There's was There's no way of knowing, knowing these things. Yeah. And what happened was then I, uh, the orchestra's doctor sent me to a very esteemed neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And this was now the fifth neurologist I had seen in an eight-month period. And he looked at these MRIs of my brain and spinal cord, the ones he just had taken, and I had over 50 active lesions in my brain. It was all lit up. And my spinal cord had a lesion that was three and a half centimeters in length, and it took up the entire spinal cord. So how come the first neurologist didn't see anything in your brain? There were none. So I, this I just, saw the scans. Well, this all just happened. This developed over an eight-month period, wow. right? Okay. So, you know, the lesions in the spinal cord were the first ones. Yeah. And then the next MRIs I had were... That must have been scary. Yeah. And these lesions were just, it was science fiction to see so many active lesions mm. at every level of the brain and the spinal cord. And um, he put me on intravenous steroids for 10 days. So if you think of that amount of methylprednisolone, it's the equivalent of 62 and a half prednisone tablets a day. 
So I did that for 10 days, and then it was six weeks of oral steroids. But it was the right decision because it basically put out a major forest fire in my central nervous system. So at that point, I started my own research, and then I looked at MS rates around the world, and I noticed that Japan had much, much lower rates of MS. And I had been there many times with the orchestra on a regular basis, and I started looking at other rates, and you notice that your very poorest nations have rates of MS that are about one-third of your wealthy industrialized nations. So to me, there was something there. It was some correlation with lifestyle, a rich, lavish lifestyle. So basically, I made the decision to start living on a very poor man's diet, very basic food, and cut out you know, our processed food. The night that I was diagnosed, first time in February, that was my last drink of alcohol. So I cut out all processed food. You know, I stopped anything like, you know, soda, uh, you name it. Everything went off the list. I started, stopped eating meat, stopped eating dairy because 75% of the planet doesn't drink milk. Yet in the U.S., we have the dairy industry telling us you have to have that white mustache or something seriously wrong. Right. <laughs> so I stopped, you know, basically, uh, you know, just tried to gear my diet toward a very simple organic diet. And uh, I used all kinds of experiences through my life. One was a, a short story I had read as a child called The Doctor's Heroism about a man with a terminal illness and there's no hope for him. The doctor tells me your only chance is to go live on watercress in a warm climate for mm -hmm. six months. Nothing but watercress. He returns to the doctor six months later in perfect health. And the, the, this story takes a tragic ending when the doctor kills the patient to examine his organs. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, basically, I started living on massive amounts of raw watercress. Uh, one of the other things, I, I was on a backpacking trip years before, and I came out of the woods after three days, and there was a, a sign, beautiful picture of a deer, and it said, do not feed the deer. When you feed a deer human foods such as chips and candy, you reduce its lifespan by 30%. So I was like, okay, that's all I need to know. You know. What does a deer eat? A deer drinks water. A deer eats vegetation, probably some insects in there, right? Hmm. And that's it. So basically, I, you know, I'm asking myself, are we physiologically that different than a deer that we can eat chips and candy and be fine? So I basically started living like a wild animal, like a hunter-gatherer at that point. But at this point, there's no Terry Walls. There's no one really to guide you. You are going through the internet, picking at stuff right. and making sense of it. Do you know how unique that is that you did that, that you didn't listen to the doctors? You actually went, I'm not putting up with this diagnosis. I know that you worked with them and that's important, you know, and, and what put out that great fire was the amount of steroids that you were given. But this is... Your story is, is absolutely amazing, that there was no one to guide you. You had, you know, I think you talked about it, the, the man that um, did the mile, the, the fastest mile. Right, yeah. yeah, so that was one of the other things that yeah. I did was I looked at, uh, you know, books I had read, things, you know, I had followed people who accomplished the impossible, mm. so to say. And the most basic example is the, uh, he was a British medical student at the age of 25 named Roger Bannister. And that was May 6, 1954. 
And he did something that was deemed impossible. He ran a mile in under four minutes, was the first person to do so. And prior to that, doctors, athletes, everyone says impossible. The human body could never run a mile in under four minutes. So he does it. Two months later, an Australian fellow breaks his record. And now you've had something like 20 people run a mile in under four minutes, including two people at the high school level. So here, an impossibility, right? It becomes an accomplishment. Now it's an achievable goal for others. Mm. And there are other people who accomplish the impossible. One of them I had the privilege of meeting in 2013, and that was Nando Parado, who survived the famous plane crash in the Andes Mountains in 1972. And when that plane crashed, Nando was thrown from row nine into the bulkhead. His skull was fractured in four places. They're up at 11,500 feet in the winter. And Nando, right, he's, he's unconscious. He's covered with blood. He's no detectable pulse. They put him in the cold with the bodies. And Nando miraculously awakes three days later. And 72 days after the crash, Nando shows up in the foothills. He had gone 37 and a half miles through one of the world's most difficult mountain ranges in the winter. He had never seen snow. He had no survival training, no equipment, no food. His only source of food was a ghastly prospect of the people who had perished in the crash. And the first thing Nando did was when he got help, he got on a helicopter and took them back to the crash site. So he went by himself, did he? He was, went, went with one other guy, and yeah. the other guy was like hours away from death, and Nando was basically pulling him along at the end. So what do you, that, that's almost an impossibility. What do you put that down to? Right, Mentals. mountain climbing teams that reconstructed Nando's route said what this guy did was not humanly possible. possible. And but he it, did it. He did it, <laughs> but it's about a, a will and it's about mm. the ability of his mind and his human spirit to supersede what his body is capable of doing. And, you know, I list other examples that I followed. Uh, One was the great violinist Yasha Heifetz, who played at this inhuman level. And there have been other violinists that have been at his level for a short period, but not for 60 years. Mm. And, you know, you had to me, one of them I followed was the great chess champion, Bobby Fischer, who was insane. But he did something that was impossible because he didn't just beat he didn't just win a chess match and beat the world champion. He beat an entire nation, an entire culture that devoted everything to keeping the championship in Soviet hands. And another one was the great baseball pitcher, Nolan Ryan, who was, I think, the first human being to be clocked at throwing the ball over 100 miles per hour. And at the age of 44, he threw his seventh no-hitter. And in that game, he was still throwing the ball 96 miles per hour. So he has a book, Nolan Ryan's Pitcher's Bible, and I essentially adopted his lifestyle. So, you know, his book is all about staving off the aging process, which is what he did. And my theory was that here an athlete gets their body to do something amazing. So I'm going to be like that. I'm going to get my body to do something amazing. So I've adopted his lifestyle and I, you know, I, I do all the things that he did. And here at the age of 59, I'm in, with MS, I'm in probably in better physical condition than when I was 20 years old. Mm. Yeah. So 
can you give us an idea of, of, of your lifestyle? Because I know part of it is fasting. Oh, yeah. Um, but just give me an idea of, I love that idea, adopt, um, you know, the lifestyle of an athlete because you're running a race. You're, and, and it's the race of life. It's the, it's, um, we're looking at prevention, but you had to actually get to a point where you can continue to prevent. You had to cure. Well, I, I don't know if it's cure or heal or give the body the resources that it needed. So, right. Give so, me an idea. Yeah, well, just to, if we can backtrack. So, one of the other and one of the main things I did was I looked at the clinical trials. It was a packet insert that came with this drug I was on. And I noticed after two years on the drug, the success rate in the placebo group and the drug group were identical. And at that point, that stopped me in my tracks and I started looking at other placebo success rates in clinical trials and MS has a disproportionately high placebo group success rate. So I set out to learn the placebo effect and it was something called the Silva method, you the healer, it's about training the mind to make physical changes to the body. And I started meditating two 30-minute sessions a day. And, you know, people say, how do you meditate? There's no science to it. You just sit quietly and start repeating commands to yourself and visualize what you want to see happen. So this I, I did religiously every day for two 30-minute sessions. And I sat, you know, in no distractions, no music, nothing, and just meditated commands that the MS was going into remission. The lesions were healing. It was leaving my body that my brain was finding new pathways to the muscles, my optic nerves were regenerating, everything. Um, so my, basically my lifestyle is very disciplined. I, uh, I drink half my body weight in ounces of filtered water every day. I don't drink water from those plastic bottles. <laughs> I carry a filter with me and at home I have a really good reverse osmosis filter. And um, I fast every day for probably 12 to 15 hours. And I also fast one day a week for 36 hours where I just have in that 36 hour period, I'll probably have maybe five liters of water. And I eat only organic food and I eat very small amounts. I live in a very low calorie diet because when I researched the MS rates around the world. And I looked at Japan, I stumbled on something called the Okinawa Centenarian Study, where they studied over 900 people that were over the age of 100 and in perfect health. And it was very interesting to note that the women in this study didn't even screen for breast, ovarian, cervical cancers. The men don't get, you know, the prostate cancer, the heart disease, multiple sclerosis. Forget it. That's something from another planet to them. And they live on a very low calorie diet and they don't eat till they're full. You know, in America, it's the all you can eat society. We have competitive eating contests here. Mm. So basically I canceled my membership in that, in that. And, you know, it was another study I had found about when you take a life form and reduce its caloric intake by half, you double its lifespan. And this was accomplished with, Mice, rats, rabbits, fruit flies, they essentially doubled their lifespan by cutting their caloric intake. So that was another thing I started doing. And, uh, you know, having traveled so much with the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, we go to China for probably two to three weeks every year. And, you know, China has some major 
pollution problems. You know, they use their their air, their land, and their water as a dumping ground. And you know, I'm afraid to eat anything. So through the miracle of dehydration, mm-hmm. you know, I get local organic food from our farmer, and I have three big dehydrators. And I, this time of the year, I run them round the clock, and I basically get my year's supply of food. And I live on dehydrated food a lot when I'm traveling. Mm. I think it's about, like you said, you lead a very disciplined life. Yeah. And there'll be people probably listening going, but I like eating. I like doing that. But And I've listened to other people, you know, ask questions in the Walls Protocol seminar and and, uh, and ask, I, I don't know if they're asking you or somebody else, but I kept thinking, well, what do you want, the disease or this type of lifestyle? Right. Because it does take discipline. It, it takes discipline to prevent, ha- you know, oh, yeah. your, health, your ill health, but it also takes di- unbelievable discipline to get well again. And the ones that have done the discipline, and I've spoken to quite a few of you, mm-hmm. um, have have helped themselves and they have no signs. And, the yeah, I, I find it really interesting that, well, I'm not prepared to do that. I'm not prepared to give up my well, weight or my whatever. For me, I think I was fortunate in a sense because the disease hit me so hard, mm. so rapidly, and it progressed over an eight-month period to the point where I was completely debilitated. And at that point, it wasn't a fight against the disease. This was a fight against against dying, basically. I was Nando Parado. I was up on the mountain. I was not going to die there. You know, I was Bobby Fischer. This wasn't a chess game. This was a life or death match, mm. you know. And, um, you know, you know, basically, for me to have my life back, any changes in diet, it's such a small price to pay. Mm. I don't mind. You know, I've, I've learned to be hungry again, but my body thanks me for it every day. So, you know, getting back to your question about what my day is like, yes. you know, I drink at least one liter of water in the morning before I do anything. And then I start with a yoga session. I do yoga, you know, with deep breathing, some meditation and, you know, getting my body. And then after the yoga, I, you know, do upper body. I, I lift weights. That was from Nolan Ryan, I, you know, because I was very weak after I get out of the hospital and I couldn't even lift the bar with no weights on it. So now I bench press 135 pounds every day and I... Let me you know, convert 135 pounds. So it's probably around the 70 kilos. So that's a lot. Yeah. So I do that yeah. every morning. And also I do chin-ups every morning and I do handstands every morning. And I'm on the bike every day. I cycle a lot. And that was, you know, one of the... Basically, the, the neuro-ophthalmologist that told me that I would be on permanent disability, I saw him 14 years later and I brought my MRIs, the first ones that I had done in 14 years, and he couldn't believe it because there are no more lesions in my brain and spinal cord. And he was actually the featured speaker at a book signing I did. Uh, this would have been a year ago, a little more than a year ago, and he talked about how I changed the microbes in my gut that I, you know, all the things they talk about here at the Walsh Protocol that basically going to this hunter-gatherer organic diet that I basically changed the makeup of everything in my gut. And also because I was doing so much cycling to rebuild my central nervous system, I was getting high levels of vitamin D 
and he talked about the correlation between low vitamin D levels and high rates of multiple sclerosis. Wow, it's just amazing. So once you've done all of that exercise, so what time are you getting up in the morning? Um, I get up early every morning, yeah. and I leave that, you know, maybe 45 minutes of physical maintenance every morning. And to me, that's not even discipline anymore. It's part mm -hmm. of, you know, I go to the bathroom, I brush my teeth, <laughs> I take a shower. Mm. Before I do that, I exercise every morning, you know, and that's just, it's part of what I do. And I just accept it as a, a normal body function. Mm. Oh. Yeah. So what about diet? Let's, so you looked at the Okinawan diet, which is part of the blue zones. Um, right. I, yeah, it's part of, I forget, Butner's book, The Blue Zones. Right. And um, it's interesting, the Okinawa Centenarian study, 70% of the diet was organic sweet potatoes. Mm. You know, they didn't have GMO or, you know, all pesticides. You know, everything was just a very clean diet. And they don't eat till they're full. They eat till they're 80% full. And if they do eat meat or fish or chicken, it's the size of a deck of cards and no more. Mm. So, you know, that, that was a big influence on my life. Like, you know, today it's what, what time here? It's, uh, it's 9.30 a.m. And I haven't eaten and I won't eat my first food every day until maybe noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. And then I start slowly, maybe a handful of organic sunflower seeds or mm. maybe a a banana or something, you know, so I, I'm basically, the older we get, you know, the less calories your body needs. And when you consume more calories than your body is able to consume, free radicals are reduced and they, they're unstable molecules that becomes the seedbed for all kinds of illness. Mm. So it's, you're, you're right. You know, like I probably have two meals a day, so I'll usually have breakfast um, and then I don't usually eat through the day and I don't even snack through the day, especially if I'm, you know, interested and I'm doing things and I'm at work. And then I might get home about four or five o'clock and I find I'm a little bit hungry then. So I'll have a small snack and then we'll have a, have a dinner. And that's usually about six mm -hmm. o'clock. And I agree with you. As we get older, yeah. we don't seem to need as much, but I'm still energetic. I remember my daughter saying to me, um, she said, Mom, it's not about how much I, I can eat and maintain my weight. It's about how, how little I can consume and still have clarity of mind, energy, and, and, and maintain weight. And right. that was her goal. And I had never really thought about it that way. But that was her goal was to see how little can I eat right, in order you, to be. Because you look great. You look like you're at your ideal body weight. Yeah. No, and I am. I'm, I'm, you I'm are. At, yeah, I'm in my definitely. ideal body weight. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, one thing is I've, I've learned to be hungry and I really mm -hmm. believe that being hungry is really good for you. And it was funny because I did all this research on my own and I have no background in medicine. I have no background in science, biology, pharmacology. You know, you hand me a cello, I can tell you things. <laughs> I don't know anything about this stuff. And it was funny, uh, I did a TED Talk last year, and they told me to watch this one about Terry Walls, and I honestly didn't know anything about her. <laughs> this is, right, This you know, you're talking, what, about, you know, 10 months ago. I didn't know who she was, and then I watched her video, and it was like, wow, you know, I, I couldn't believe this, someone who did what I did, and... It's funny because her background, right, she's so brilliant with medicine, biology, and she knows so much that 
I could have come up with the same answers and we wound up in an identical result. Mm. And what was fascinating was I met her in December. She emailed me coincidentally a week after I saw her video introducing herself. Wow. And it was just so bizarre. And I remember I got this email and I woke my wife up. I said, honey, look at this email I just got. And I picked her up at LaGuardia Airport in New York City on, it was December 4th, 2016. And we spent the day together. And I videoed our conversations and I put it up in several segments. And she explained to me from a medical and a scientific and a biological standpoint why I had basically reversed the disease, why all these things that I had done were the right moves mm. and why I've gotten my body back in its entirety. Mm. And it was just so fascinating that I, I could have been right on all these things. So no. tell me something. When it, you had that where you had your hands, you couldn't play the cello and you were given those steroids which put out the fire and then you started your lifestyle changes, how long before you started to play the cello again? I went back to work six weeks later, wow. as I promised. <laughs> I couldn't see and I couldn't move my hands. Oh. So here I am with the Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the great orchestras, <laughs> Mm. And they enlarged the music for me. And I sat by myself on a stand in the back and I couldn't see and I completely faked it. I mimed it for the better part of the first season. And I was just, you know, I could see silhouettes and I was just kind of vibrating with my left arm and I was moving the bow motion and I was doing air cello. I, I wasn't playing. And I kept it so quiet from my colleagues. You know, people had heard I got sick, and when they came back, I came back to work, and they said, yeah, we heard, we heard you, you know, and I was like, no, I'm, I was misdiagnosed, I'm, I'm fine, and I kept it so quiet, you know, because I think to have told my colleagues in the orchestra that I had multiple sclerosis, they know Jacqueline Dupre, mm. and that's basically, that's a death sentence, so... For me, I just kept it quiet. And then when I wrote my book, I published my book in uh, 2015 and then went to print in 2016. My colleagues that read my book said, I had no idea you went through all this, you know, because I, uh, I kept it very, very secretive. So what's a season in the, in the orchestra? We start in September and we basically go through the end of August. Okay, so almost a, an 11-month period that you were unable to use your arms. And then with diet and everything like that, it, it all started, started to come to back. It started to come back, right. Yeah. It started to come back. I mean, it, it wasn't, there was no day when a light was turned yeah. on. I mean, this was, I clawed my way back. Like when I first got on the bike after I got out of the hospital, I couldn't believe that I was still able to balance. And, you know, even going a short distance was so difficult. I mean, you have to understand at this point for me to walk half a block was like running a marathon. I had mm. no physical strength. And I just slowly started to build this every day. And, you know, it was funny that this neuro-ophthalmologist that when I told him I was going to go back to work and he said, okay, you have to be serious about this. He says, if you don't feel well, you've got to stay home and take two or three days off. And it wasn't like I had any time where I felt well. I felt sick and weak every day and this drug I was on this Avonex the side effects are, are brutal and then you know 
here I, every day I woke up and I felt so sick and so weak. And I put down two liters of water first thing. And I got on the bike and I biked to work and I just, yeah. You just had to do it. It was, it was discipline. Yeah. And you know, it was funny that the first time this little hill where we live, the first time I did it, I had to stop and get off the bike and I couldn't breathe. It was so strenuous. Mm. And I just kept going and kept rebuilding my body. You know, I would lift weights. I finally got to be able to lift the bar and then I would put five pounds at a time on and I would start, you know, increasing the weight gradually. And it, so it was not like a miracle. It was incremental, wasn't it? It basically, mm. I was, I felt that it was three years before my body was back to normal. Mm. And I mean, I didn't work on this 24 seven. I worked on this 25 eight, <laughs> you know, that was, I, yeah. I, I slept, I ate and I breathed healing my body and it was everything in my life was geared toward getting it back yeah you know here I was I was the Olympian going for the gold medal Mm. you know you know you you know how the the, right the Olympic athletes will devote everything Mm -hmm. about their life to getting that medal that was me you know I I wasn't going to die up on the plane Mm -hmm. up on the mountain Mm -hmm. you know I, I was going to make it back to the foothills and get help so tell me how did this affect your family because often, it's, you know, when you're an athlete, and I know lots of athletes, lots of Olympians, and they become very um, selfish because they have to become selfish in order to win that gold medal. Right. So how did it affect your family? Yeah, so I got out of the hospital and um, I had I moved out on my own about, I think it was about six months later, I, I moved out. Mm-hmm. And... The reason was basically I had to devote everything toward fighting this disease. And I felt the alternative was if I stayed there, my children would end up pushing me around in a wheelchair. Hmm. And I needed to, you know, it's funny when you're on an aircraft and they give you the pre-flight instructions and they (laughs) say, put on your own mask first, then put your child's mask on. Hmm. That's basically it. I had to take care of my body and get my life back before I could take care of my children. Mm. So there was a heavy price to pay for that, you know, because my relationship with my son is good, but my daughter, I'm hoping one day she'll she'll understand and come back. Yeah, like his, you know, you may she may have been pushing you around in a wheelchair instead of you know, know, being able to have a relationship with you where she can go running and jumping and playing and, right. and doing things so, like that. So, you know, that. so I, I did provide for mm. the kids in every way, but, you know, I, I, unfortunately, it, you know, the divorce turned out to be extremely contentious and difficult. And, mm. you know, it's, there's no such thing as a great divorce. No, no it's, a, <laughs> and, yeah, no, there's you know, a, It just brings out the worst in everyone. Yeah, and, uh, it's not easy. Yeah. Definitely. All right, so let's talk about your book. Um, when you, you finished writing it in, or when was it published? So I published the book digitally in oh. December of 2015, and then it went to print in March of 2016. And basically, I didn't know anything. The only thing that I worked with back then in the research that I found really helpful was the Swank, or the MS Diet book by Roy Swank. And I basically adopted a lot of his diet, but I went many steps further and, you know, customized something for my body. Mm. And 
my goal when I wrote the book was to write the book that I desperately needed when mm. I was debilitated with this disease. And had I had this book, it would have helped me so much. And, you know, you're a year before Terry Walls was diagnosed and you're 15 years before her book came out, The Walls Protocol. So, you know, here I've, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback that the book about everything that I did, the mindset, the lifestyle, the diet, you know, that it's helped many people. Mm. We had um, a guest probably a month or so ago. Her name was Sue Moore and actually Sue works for me and she mm. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I think in 2013 or 2014, and she did exactly what you did. But what she did was she went online, she found Terry, mm -hmm. so she did the Walls Protocol, and then she did Joe Dispenza's work, which is all about the mind. In actual fact, while this, while this seminar is on here in Portland, Oregon, he's doing an advanced mm -hmm. um, on, you know, about the mind and exactly what you did. So yeah. she, you know, got it at a later stage to you. She was able to go to Terry and and to Joe Dispenza and in nine months her lesions um, almost completely disappeared and she believes they're probably all gone now because you can't, like you, you cannot tell. Like I'm looking at some of the clients or patients or people or attendees at this conference and some are really in trouble, like... Like oh, yeah. A lot of them are in trouble, actually. And even though they've, you know, they've been on the protocol, they just, you can still see that they're in their gait or in their actions or in their mm -hmm. voices um, that they're not quite right. But I don't see that with you or Sue. I know I don't see that what I'm seeing with some of these people. And I'm wondering, if, yeah, are they doing the protocol but not doing the mind? So I think what you taught them, yesterday um, in your talk will hopefully push them towards doing those meditations and, and getting to the mind. Yeah. So the name of your book? Is When the Music Stopped, My Battle... E I'm sorry, let me say this yeah. again. When the Music <laughs> Stopped, My Battle and Victory Against MS. So they can pick it up online or it's they... For through, digital through, download. Yeah. yeah. And, and they can also get up for those people who love hard copy just through Amazon? Uh, or through, through my website. Okay, what's your website? It's, www.bobcafaro.com, B-O-B-C-A-F-A-R-O.com. Okay. I know it's very expensive to ship books overseas, uh, but uh, we just signed on with a distributor, so hopefully that'll be good for international yeah. shipping as well. But uh, if you want a signed copy of the book, get on my website and, uh, you know, just basically the bullet with the shipping cost yeah so. and because your story is brilliant and it gives hope and it's not just about ms this is about all autoimmune diseases or even looking at any disease right. and changing your lifestyle see it as an opportunity for change as opposed to you know a death sentence which is what you did you yeah. you had to make those changes mm -hmm. now before we finish do you have any last words anything else that you'd like to that i haven't asked you the right question or you want to tell our audience i would say that people say i could never do that hmm. but we never know what we're going to be capable of until we're in a situation where we're basically up against the wall and i never thought i was one of these people that could you know join the ranks of people who accomplish the impossible and when i met nando parado that changed my life because I realized, like, I had basically accomplished something mm -hmm. that would, 
is normally deemed impossible. And I think that power exists within each of us. You know, basically the, the power of the human spirit and the power of the mind is just immeasurable. And it's such an untapped resource. And I think if people learn how to harness the power of their mind and their spirit, anything is possible. You know, in the word impossible exists the word possible. I love it. Thank you so much. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And um, remember that we're going to New Zealand. Um, I think there's one or two seats left for New Zealand. And we're also going to Africa in 2018. So if you're interested in coming to Africa with the Up for a Chat Girls, then um, make sure you get on the website, awakenthechangewithin.com, and come for a venture. I believe there's about three seats left for for our Africa trip. And um, I know Karen normally does this, and I've got to try and remember exactly what she says, but I think you go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat or go to our Facebook page, Up For A Chat, and please comment, give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and please comment and let us know what you thought about this amazing interview that I've absolutely enjoyed doing. So thank you, Bob, and thank you, audience, for listening, and um, we'll see you on the ride. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.